Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Check out our amazing offers on Xfinity Internet. You'll get fast speed and Wi-Fi coverage you can count on. Plus, get advanced security free with the XFi Gateway, so you can keep the connected devices in your home protected from network threats. Just log in and activate through the Xfinity app. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of May 11, 2020. We hope you and your families are holding up okay as we enter another month dealing with COVID-19. While many hope that daily life returns soon, Major League Baseball is making plans to resume operations. On this episode, we'll break down the latest proposal that is pending upon owners and players' approval. Could we really have the regular season baseball return in July? Plus, we'll answer your questions in P.O. Sox at the end of the show. Join us now to discuss the latest Major League Baseball draft news and the lasting impact of the 2020 draft being just five rounds is one of our best friends on the show, senior writer from MLB.com, it's Jim Callis. And hello, Jim. Thanks for coming back on the show. Oh, yeah. No, glad to be here, Josh. I just wish, I wish we had warmer weather. I wish it was uh, the, the first <laughs> number of our temperatures here in Chicago was not beginning with a three as we recorded this. So, but, uh, but hanging in there, doing good. Hope you and your family and everybody are, are, are safe and well. Well, before we discuss the latest regarding the Major League Baseball draft, I want to talk about something positive first, and that is dogs. How are your four golden retrievers at your house enjoying the stay-at-home order? Um, they're enjoying it. Um, yeah, I think my son's dog, who'd been in the UK with him, enjoys having. Yeah, he, we've had him here before, so I think he's thrilled to have three friends uh, at all times. We're going to be in a little bit of a delicate situation because our puppy, who is about ten and a half months old, is our first girl puppy. 
and she is probably going to go into heat soon, which uh-huh. is not going to be great while quarantined. And my son's dog never um, got fixed himself, so we are taking him for a, a dog vasectomy on Monday. So uh, <laughs> we we did not want a batch of quarantine puppies. So. <laughs> yeah, suddenly you go from four to eight. Or four, uh, four to eight would be like four to like 16 or something. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and then I would retire to just raise golden retrievers at that point. But we're doing it. And how is your dog Frankie doing? Yeah, Frankie's doing well. Uh, our In our building, our neighbor has two uh, German shepherds that he has become friends with. So imagine a 26-pound corgi. And two adult <laughs> German shepherds, and they love each other. They they love going for walks, and that that's been that's been helpful for him because usually he goes to day camp and plays with other puppies. And we're talking about getting another dog, so he has another friend at the there. House. You go, so got to do it that way. Yeah, so far he's doing well. So we'll, we'll my see about the second be, dog. I say my oldest daughter Josh would be so jealous because she loves corgis and wants a corgi. <laughs> so uh, she she would heartily endorse your corgi. All right, excellent. That is good because we're probably going to get a second corgi. So there, maybe like having two dogs, it keeps them entertained. So and probably a lot less hair than four golden retrievers with two corgis. So (laughs) I can imagine. I can imagine. So okay, let's let's start with the news about Major League Baseball draft only being five rounds. It will be held on June 10th and the 11th. It is the fewest rounds in Major League Baseball draft history. After the fifth round, teams can sign an unlimited amount of players up to a $20,000 signing bonus. And for those that are drafted, they will be paid out a maximum of $100,000 in 2020 and the 50% of the remaining bonus in 2021 and the other 50% remaining of the bonus in 2022. Other words, whoever the White Sox take at pick 11, their bonus structure will look like $100,000 in 2020 $2.2 $2.2 million in 2021 and another $2.2 million in 2022. Jim, this is a very much different format from past seasons. What do you think the rippling effect will be in the upcoming years with only a five-round draft in 2020? Um, I, I think it's really unfortunate. I'm going <laughs> to try to choose my words carefully here since I work for MLB. Um, I was obviously not consulted in this decision, but no, I mean, it's unfortunate in a number of ways. I mean, the the cheapest way for teams to acquire talent, the quickest and best way to rebuild, is through the draft. Um, you know, the White Sox have gone about it a little differently. They've made a bunch of trades um, to get players who were acquired through the draft, or they traded players that they acquired cheaply through the draft. Um, and I think if you're a rebuilding team, this is a huge blow. Um, because you're not going to get a chance. Now, like, yes, I understand that after the fifth round, the chances of hitting on any pick in particular is slim. But I would even suggest that even for guys who don't get to the big leagues, a lot of these guys have trade value right away that you could capitalize on if, if you want. I, I think uh, there's just so much to unpack here. One, I think it's unfortunate because I don't think it had to be done. I mean, yes, I know baseball and the economy and, and a lot of places are hurting right now. But as you mentioned, they're deferring bonuses. You know, the first five rounds right now, or the first five, the only five rounds right now come with a $236 million total bonus pools for all five, all 30 teams. And that's with rolling them back to last year's bonus pool levels instead of increasing them by 3.5%, which isn't a big deal. But out of that $236 million, they're going to defer 
at, at least $220 million. And then just to put that number in perspective, they've paid the players, if there's no season, they've paid the players $170 million right now advanced on their salaries. So, I mean, I know they're going to have to pay that $220 million, but they're already say, they're like paying less out of their pocket than they would have, even if there's no season, like not even close. To have a 10-round draft with full slots would have cost each team an extra million dollars. To have a – let's say you had a limit on uh, – you know, in the past, you could sign non-drafted free agents for up to $125,000, you know, as well as players after the 10th round, up to $125,000 without accounting against your bonus pool. Just allow teams to sign 10 players for, for $100,000 would have cost another million dollars. So if, for $2 million, you could add something – close to a normal draft and you know the the thing that stinks for these players who would have gotten those bonuses is these guys you know these guys aren't getting you know four and a half million dollars you know which is the bonus slot you know roughly for the for the white Sox pick and going out and buying cars and all kinds of stuff i mean if you're signing for one hundred twenty five thousand dollars or so you're paying off college loans you're you're using that money when you when you're getting paid like a ridiculous wage for only 5 months of the year in the minor league season to live off of to eat try to eat healthy to try to train things that enhance your career and make you a better investment for the club that signed you and now those guys aren't going to have that chance i i do think i've said this i i stand by this I do think more guys will sign for $20,000 than than people think i you know like last year after the fifth round, 395 players got six-figure bonuses, and 296 of them were after the tenth round. And, and I don't know if that'll be 100 of those guys will sign, or 150 will sign, or, or whatever. But I, I do think because it's such an uncertain landscape where there's going to be fewer minor league teams next year, fewer spots. The draft's already been cut to 20 rounds next year. Who's to say it won't be cut further? Uh, you know, if the economy doesn't rebound, if, if college football can't have fans in the stands. Are we even going to have spring sports next year? Or at least, you know, at colleges across the country. There might not be college baseball as we know it next year. And I do think if you went to college and your goal when you went to college, your primary goal was to play pro ball, you know, I think it stinks. But I think if you get the opportunity to play for $20,000, like, you better take that opportunity. Because if you don't, you go next year, there's going to be fewer spots because there's going to be fewer teams. You know, who knows if college baseball is going to be normal? The draft's already twenty rounds could be less. If everybody goes back, Josh, like you know, everybody, like, well, let's just assume that everybody who would have been drafted around six to twenty and gotten these six-figure bonuses goes back to school. Like most most of those guys are college juniors, and then so you're gonna have all those guys go back to school. All the guys who would have gone around six to twenty next year in a normal draft are going to be there anyway. So the math is half those guys aren't going around 6 to 20. And you know who's going to be the guys not getting drafted? It's going to be the guys who went back to school and are 22 years old unless they had an unbelievable season. So I, I think you got to – it stinks. But, if, again, if your primary goal is to play pro ball when you went to college, you probably have to sign for 20. And, and as for the game itself – you know, next year's draft is going to be a mess because you're going to have, like I just said, you know, some number of guys who would have been gone this year back in the mix, along with all the guys who are going to be in the mix normally next year. We're not going to have, you know, I can't imagine summer college baseball or summer high school showcases, and who knows what the fall will bring. So you're going to get a lot less looks at those guys. It would be harder to scout them. I think, you know, people aren't talking about this much, but one thing that's going to stink when a lot of these juniors – do go back is you're going to have a lot of freshmen who find out in July and August, oh, 
my school suddenly has no scholarship for me because these juniors came back. Um, and you're going to have a bunch of kids like left hanging. Like they can either go to school on no scholarship, which, you know, I mean, it's going to be tough in this economy probably for a lot of families. Um, and you're not going to play because the juniors are back to eating up the playing time. So, I mean, are you really going to stick with that school and pay 100% of your expenses and not play, and then you're going to get run off by the coach when he needs scholarship room the next year? No, I mean, those kids are going to go to junior college. It's going to be a mess, and, and I think it's it's bad for the sport because you're going to have a, a blip where there's basically one year where you're not bringing talent in. Now, again, I mean, yes, the, the vast majority of guys after the fifth round aren't going to be big league superstars, but there's a number of good big league players. You know, Paul Goldschmidt's a guy who jumps immediately to mind, uh, who was drafted in that range, and a lot of those guys are. I, I think I saw a stat that there were, you know, there's, there's hundreds of players in the big leagues last year who were drafted after the fifth round, and, and, and you're just going to basically have a – a develop, you know, it's going to be a lost year in terms of acquiring talent, and it's going to be a lost year in terms of developing talent because I don't imagine we're really going to have a minor league season this year. I think we may eventually get to, you know, where teams have like instruction league programs for their very best prospects. You're not going to bring everybody in because it's too expensive, but maybe you bring in. 50 prospects and you you divide them. You have one team of older guys and one team of younger guys and. They play games against other teams, you know, once it's safe to do that. But, like, I mean, I don't think that's going to happen until August, and that that's not going to be a, a full minor league season. So I, I think it's going to be a, 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 you know, a lost year, essentially, that, that, that you know, probably won't be felt the full effects until a couple of years down the line. But it's going to be a lost year development-wise. So guys who, who would have been ready this year next aren't going to be ready now because they aren't going to get that development. And it's going to be a lost year talent-wise because you're just not bringing players in. That was a very long answer for you. <laughs> so No, no, I, I'm glad you mentioned the college juniors because I am 100% in agreement with you. They are maybe in the toughest spot. Like college seniors, they the White Sox used this strategy last year. We'll talk a little bit more about that draft strategy in a moment. But they signed five college seniors to $10,000 from like rounds five through 10. Right, so they could afford fun. Dahlquist and Thompson, right. Exactly. So college seniors, they never come out ahead. Uh, in the Major League Baseball draft, as far as the bonus pool, no, and they they kind of, yeah, and you're right, and they kind of know it. And I'd suggest too, if you're a college senior and somebody wants to sign you, you should just sign because you're gonna if you go back, most college seniors can be 23 next year, and that's ancient. Uh, you know, age matters to a lot of teams, and if they have a 22, you know, it's gonna be weird. Like, what do we call these guys? But like the 22 year old, they're not really redshirts, but call them the, the 22 year old double juniors versus the 21-year-old double sophomores next year. Unless the 22-year-old double junior is far superior, the team's going to take the younger guy every time. Right. And I feel that college programs may go that route as well. I I wouldn't even say like Tim Corbin at Vanderbilt, right? He always has this amazing freshman class that comes in every single year. And if you are a junior right now in Vanderbilt and you decide that you're going to come back for your senior year – I don't necessarily think you got a roster spot. Yeah, it's going to be interesting because the downside of that, and you know, and when we're not picking on them in particular, but like I don't know how like like I'm just going to play devil's advocate here. Like I think it sends a bad man. Like, you know, Vanderbilt, a lot of these programs, you know, Vanderbilt especially, is one of the closest knit programs, and you know, they're a family, and they have actually have a, a, a locker room with lockers for David Price and all their their former players to come back and train. Like, how would you tell if you're Tim Corbin? You know Mason Hickman. Yeah, you know I don't know how many of your listeners know Mason. Mason Hickman, you know, was their number one starter this year. 
won two games in Omaha last year, including the game that decided the national championship. He's been a, a great performer, you know, kind of from a, a major league standpoint, you know, kind of pedestrian stuff, but the guy competes and wins. Like, he could go in the first five rounds this year, but he might not. How, if you're Tim Corbin, do you tell Mason Hickman you can't come back if he wants to come back? And so I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think you may have some situations like that, but the flip side is most of these coaches – you know, are trying to win. Like they want to win. Right. And like, and I know Mason Hickman <laughs> can perform like, like my freshman, you know, I might have some Ballyhooed freshmen, you know, and saying not every freshman is going to get run off everywhere, but like, how am I going to tell Mason Hickman who I know can like go out and compete on Friday night with anybody in college baseball and win? Cause he's done it. Like, I, I don't know. I mean, it's the, the the management of rosters for college coaches is going to be an absolute nightmare because of that situation. You're going to have to tell some kids, we don't have room for you, you know, whether it's your juniors or it's your freshmen. And, and you're essentially going to have a double freshman class, you know, or, you know, however many freshmen come in this year, because last year's freshman class basically got an extra year of eligibility. And, and so you're going to have, like, it, it's not like the roster problem goes away in a year. It, it's going to be a management problem for two or three years. Um, you know, and, and I do think, I do think you'll see a number, like, I, I do think the very best freshmen, like, they're, they're obviously going to find spots to keep them. But I do think kind of your second, third tier freshmen, a lot of those guys, they're their best bet. Because the problem is, if you go, let's say you go to a school, and they're like, you know, hey, sorry, Josh, you know, we had three, you know, four juniors come back. We don't have scholarship money for you, but we'd love to have you be part of the program. Come here. So you get you 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 find the money to go to school there, and but you're probably not going to play because all these juniors and seniors came back, and so then after your freshman year, you haven't played. You haven't proven you can do anything, and. You know, are they going to keep you? Because there's next year's freshman class coming too. I mean, at that point, you might be told, "Hey, you know, sorry, Josh. Like, we're not going to have a spot for you to play as a sophomore. If you want to play, you should probably transfer." And you've wasted a year. So I, I think a lot of those guys are going to wind up at junior college. And I'm not, you know, and they're not all going to become great prospects right away. But like, all those guys are draft eligible too. So I mean, next year is going to probably be this crazy, <laughs> bloated draft. With the second fewest rounds in history, and I wouldn't be shocked if they cut it down further from 20, because it's like it's not like the economy is going to bounce back and teams are going to want to spend on the draft, and uh, you're going to have very you know, the, the least scouting information you've ever had on players. I mean, next year's draft could be just an absolute mess. Oh, I I agree with you. I feel like I'd be like every other scout watching videos on YouTube from well, showcases I mean, across I the country. Going, I think you'll be going into the spring. You know, I mean, you might have a little information, but like you'll be going into the spring with very little information on a lot of guys. Right. So that's the college players. What are you hearing about high school prospects? Are, are they still moving forward, being drafted and skipping college together, or are some willing to go to junior college for a year and try to get around this bonus payment structure? Well, the bonus payment structure is the same thing next year. I mean, it's oh, not okay. better next year. So even if you go to junior college. Hey, next year, Josh, <laughs> you get a hundred thousand up front, and then we're deferring your bonus in equal amounts over two years. So it, it's it's wow. not going to get better. Yeah, it's not going to get better next year. I, I do think, and again, we'll we'll see. I, I I've said all along that I thought if we had a five round draft, it would resemble the first five rounds of last year's draft, and if we had ten round draft, it would resemble the first ten rounds. I I, I do think, if I remember the number correctly. There were 40 players who got $600,000 or 
or higher bonuses as high school players in the first five rounds last year. And, and I think you'll still see, like, you know, 40 of the top high school players sign the first five rounds. Now, you're using the White Sox as an example. You know, maybe your Matthew Thompsons and your Andrew Dahlquist, instead of getting $2 million bonuses, you know, maybe it winds up being like 1.7 or 1.5. But I still think, you know, I mean, again, you know, college baseball could be very uncertain next year. We, we don't know what it's going to look like. Um, and I still think the best high school players, by and large, are going to sign. I, I think the the biggest difference will be I don't think you'll see, like you alluded to, the teams going with the senior sign strategy where, you know, you, round six or ten, you draft a bunch of seniors and sign them for five or $10,000 and you save a million dollars to then give to other guys. You don't have that kind of maneuverability with five picks, but what I think will probably happen is – You'll see in the fourth or fifth round, college juniors getting taken, especially in the fifth round, and being told, "Hey, you know this slot's four hundred thousand dollars. We'll give you a hundred, and if right. you don't take it, you go. I mean, this is what's going to be. I'll call you up, Josh, or I'll call your advisor and say, Josh, we'll give you a hundred thousand here in the middle of the fourth round. Um, you got two minutes to let us know, or we're moving on to the next guy. Um, and you know, like you know, and the, the implication is going to be, hey, if you don't take it." You might only get 20. Um, so I think that's where teams are going to save their money. They won't be able to save as much, which is why I don't think we'll get, uh, you know, we won't have necessarily as many $2 million guys. But I do think teams will find ways to get creative to find money to sign high school guys. I, I, I still think a number of the high school guys, the, the best high school guys in the in the draft will sign. Yeah, I agree with you. And that's what I was going to ask is that in rounds four or five, if you foresee – a similar strategy that we saw last year in which even though we know what the bonus slot values are for the fourth and fifth round picks, that teams are not going to even come close to offering slot value because they're going to want to cut a hundred, maybe 200,000 of that and send it up to go over slot in rounds two and three to catch any of the falling high school prospects that don't get selected late in the first round. That's how I feel. I could see a lot of teams doing it. Do you think that would be a widespread strategy or would that still be few and far between and some of those players drafted the fourth or fifth round could still get slot value? I think some will. I mean, I think teams will approach it differently. I mean, I do think, you know, I just said I think it'll be very similar to last year's top five rounds. I do think, you may, like, whatever, then I think it was 40 guys that got $600,000. Maybe it'll be a few less than 40 because you, I, like, I could see some teams being conservative and saying, hey, we only have five picks and we don't have a minor league season this year. Let's get guys who could contribute a little earlier. So maybe it's not 40 guys. Maybe it's closer to 30. But, yeah, I, I do think you'll have teams. I mean, if it were me – I mean, I've said this for years. I mean, you've heard me say this. I would line up the players, yeah, and you got to figure out signability. And I would take, you know, as many of the best players as I could. And if they're high school, they're high school. And if they're college, they're college. You know, as long as I can sign them, I wouldn't care about the demographic. I do think, you know, teams might be a little bit more conservative in some cases this year and just say, hey, we've only got five picks. We, you know, we can't go crazy. You know, and then, and I'm just saying the White Sox in particular, like not, I, you know, we don't even know exactly how Mike Shirley is going to draft. But like, you know, maybe I, I'm just using them as an example, not as a you know specific knowledge. You know, maybe they don't draft Matthew Thompson and Andrew Dahlquist this year. You know, maybe they take Matthew Thompson and then go college in the third round. You know, like like you might see teams be a little bit more conservative. But I, I still I still think a lot of the best high school players are going to sign. Now let's talk about the players that are going to be available to be selected in a month and the top ten right now on MLB. 
Twitter.com slash Pipeline. Your guys' top ten are Spencer Torkelson, Austin Martin, Asa Lacey, Emerson Hancock, Nick Gonzalez, Garrett Mitchell, high school center fielder Zach Veen, left-handed pitcher Reed Detmers from Louisville, Max Mayer, and Heston Kerstad. Uh, for our listeners and for those that have been following our draft coverage on SoxMachine.com, you know these guys already. You've been following them since last summer. I guess the one eye-opening part is that, it's just the way it's constructed, in the top 10, you only have one high school prospect, and that's Zach Veen. But prospects 11 through 17 are all high schoolers. It's weird, too, because we didn't try to do that on purpose, and we're not trying to reflect <laughs> where we think guys are going to go. Like, I do think right. the high school pitchers always get underdrafted, but we've noticed that, too. Like, if you look through our list, it's like like it's really runs of, like, you know, we kind of after those two runs of college versus high school, then we go to college, to to high school, and then 21 through 32 are all college, and 33 to 35. So I don't know how that happened. Like it, it's just kind of <laughs> kind of coincidental. I mean, I do think the strength of this draft is college. Um, it, it's funny like that, but you know, the guys you just mentioned <clears throat> in that top 10, and obviously the White Sox pick 11. Um, you know, it's. I mean, this is not a normal year. We don't have as much knowledge as to what teams are doing. Yeah, you haven't spotted. Hey, there's Theo Epstein at so and so's game type of thing. Uh, we we need data of who's been on which Zoom calls, I guess, to to figure that out. But um, uh, I do think that there's a good chance. I mean, at least based on what we know now, that those ten guys might all be gone picks one through ten like i you know it doesn't always work out that way and there could be wild cards and, and you know maybe a team cuts a deal but i think there's a good chance that that all ten of those guys are, are are gone before the white Sox pick now you mentioned that you feel college is the strength of this draft class i i for sure would say college starting pitching there is a lot of depth there are really good options especially for teams drafting in the late first round. And for the White Sox, if you are one of those fans rooting for them to get some college starting pitching to help with pitching depth, there will be some intriguing options for them available definitely in the second round. Yep. Are there additional strengths to this draft class, Jim, outside of college starting pitching? Well, college starting pitching is the most obvious one. and you know, and It especially stands out compared to last year. Because last year, you know, as we talked about, was like I've been doing this for 30 years, and that was the worst group of first-round caliber college pitchers I've ever seen. And a lot of guys in the industry said the same thing. Um, and this year it's strong, and it looks even stronger compared to last year. I mean, I, I do think there are probably 20 pitchers, college pitchers or so, who could go in the top 50 picks, which makes for an interesting strategy that if you're picking 11 like the White Sox, now I'm not saying you should just pass on on pitching there, but like the quality, like the quality of bat you could get at 11, you know you could still get a pretty good arm, you know, at 47. I do think that the college pitching, because it's so strong, overshadows how good the college hitting is. I mean, the college pitching is the best part. But I mean, we're talking about draft where Spencer Torkelson is one of the best college bats, like of the last 20 years. Austin Martin's this great pure hitter with track record. Nick Gonzalez might be Keston Hira. You know, Garrett Mitchell's got five-tool potential. You know, Heston Kerstad's got a, a three-year track record of hitting for power in the SEC with Team USA. I mean, that, that's five college bats in the top ten. And so I, I do feel like the college pitchers overshadow that there's some pretty good college hitters in this crop, too. Um, you know, and I, I think the high school crop is more – Average-ish compared to a normal year, um, you know. A lot of the position players after Zach Veen, you know, are interesting, but but they have kind of a a hole in their game or, or something, a question mark about them. 
you know, and there, there's some pitching. It's maybe not as deep, but, there, but there's three really good high school pitchers at the top, and and Mick Abel and Jared Kelly, Nick Bitsko. But I, I think overall, it, it's a really deep draft. Which again, I mean, it kind of st- you know gets back to how it stinks. I mean, yes, around six or ten are not you know like full of you know hundreds of big leaguers, but there's some good play. There's some very good players who are not going to fit in the first five rounds of this draft. Is Spencer Torkelson going first overall to Detroit? I think so. Like, I mean, I don't – like I said, it's so weird because we're a month away, and usually you, you kind of have – when we've been doing mocks for about a month and you're, and you're you know seeing trends and guys are going up and down, and we haven't really had that because there's been no baseball in, what, six, seven weeks. But I do I do think he's going number one. I mean, it was interesting. I don't, I don't know if you saw the story I did where I surveyed – um, a bunch of you know scouting executives, directors, cross checkers, you know not area level guys, but like higher level scouting, you know even a couple GMs, and it was interesting. I guess with the coronavirus, people got back to me. I got 35 responses when we asked who's better, Spencer Torkelson or Austin Martin, who are one two, and it was 29 to five with one guy who kind of took the middle of the road. It was 29 to five in favor of Torkelson. I, I, everybody seems to think that's who the Tigers would take. Um, that he'd be the obvious pick. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think he's going number one. What position does Austin Martin play? Because Vanderbilt had him for the first four games that he played at third base, but then they moved him to center field. Is that his future home? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's kind of the question on him. I mean, he's still going to go very good. You know, if he – you know, the reason I think he doesn't go number one – well, the reason he's going number one is partially, too, because Torkelson's so good. If Martin doesn't go two, and let's say he goes three or five or whatever, I don't think he's getting out of the first four or five picks. It is because of that. You know, like, like there was a lot of hope that he'd move to shortstop this year, um, and he didn't. Uh, you know, as, you know. You mentioned, you know, Tim Corbin earlier. You know, I've had numerous scouts repeat some version of, "Look, you know, Corbin's trying to win." And if he thought Austin Martin was his best shortstop, he would have played him there last year, or he would have played him there this year. And you know, I mean, how many big league shortstops didn't play shortstop for their college team? Um, probably not for. I, I can't even come up with one. <laughs> I can't even think of one. Yeah, exactly. And you know, nor the scouts. So, you know, the, the 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 biggest question with Austin, I think, even going back to high school, was his arm. He's had some minor injuries. There's times where the arm doesn't look particularly strong. There's times where he looks very tentative making throws. Um, it's probably an average arm at best. Um, you know, I, I don't think – I thought initially coming into the year, even when he opened the year third, like, okay, maybe whoever drafts him will try him at shortstop. I don't even think that's going to happen now. Um, you know, third base, maybe. I, I think the two most likely positions on him, you know, having talked to a bunch of people, are probably either center field. You know, and you, know you, you, you get some guys who, who say, look, you know, he's not a, a plus runner. It's more of a solid runner. Is it true center field speed? I, I do think – He's a pretty instinctive player, and I do think he could become a solid center fielder in time. But it's it very well might be outfielder second base. In the latest mock draft on MLB.com slash Pipeline, uh, from your counterpart, Jonathan Mayo, he has the White Sox taking Heston Kirstad, the right fielder from Arkansas. If the Major League Baseball draft were tomorrow, and I know that you mentioned that with Kirstad being the top 10, that there's a good chance, knowing what you know today, that he may not even be on the board for the White Sox at pick 11. Do you think the White Sox would go this route if Kershad was available compared to other players that might be available to them at pick 11? 
I mean, it, it, it's. I honestly don't know. You know, part of it is they have a new scouting director, and we don't exactly know his trends. I mean, you know, not that the scouting director is making the pick all by himself, but I mean, you know, when, when Nick Costello was scouting director, I mean, they were taking a lot of college players. So, like, I think it'd be very easy to say, hey. They're taking a college player. I mean, you've probably heard the same thing. I mean, haven't you heard a lot of high school chatter about the White Sox? Like, I have. Like, I don't even know where it comes from. <laughs> but like, you know, like Mike Shirley likes high school players. They're going high school heavy. Like, and again, I don't think it's ever that simplistic that like Mike Shirley is just sitting somewhere and saying, "I don't care who's on the board. We're taking a high school guy." Like, you know, like it just doesn't work that way. But like, so I don't know. I I, I really don't have any feel for who they're taking at 11. I mean, Jonathan did that mock draft, I think about 10 days ago, and I'm working on one now that'll be out in the middle of next week, right after we expand our list from 150 to 200. And I've been working kind of the agent side of it first, and then I'm going to start talking to teams, although I, I just I don't think the teams themselves know nearly as much as they would at this point. I think they, I mean, I think they're organized, but I don't think people have really gone down that decision-making road or, or, or figured things out or are as far down that road as they, they would be. I don't have great feel for what they would do at 11. I mean, I, I do – you know, just speaking more generally – you know, we have Kerstad at ten, so it's not like we're he's that far from pick eleven. But I, I just you're talking about a guy who's had three great years. You know, if you're counting this year as a year, three great years at Arkansas, and was like very good on Team USA last year, and has a proven track record. And he's a bat in a draft where there's a lot of pitching. I, I can't quite see him getting to eleven. I really can't. I mean, the guys in the top ten most likely to get to eleven. I mean, I guess, I mean, it could be Garrett Mitchell because I, I just don't know how much teams are going to hold his type 1 diabetes against him. You know, maybe Zach Veen, but I think people are kind of in love with Zach Veen. Like I said, I, I haven't tried to plot my mock out, and I have several more texts and calls before I do. But I, I think right now, just kind of thinking about my head, I, I think I would project all of our top 10 guys to be gone at 10. But be gone by the time the White Sox pick at 11. We did get some fan questions that will kind of help continue as far as that part of the conversation. Well, let me ask you a question. Let me ask okay. you a question first, Josh. So if our top 10 go, yep. you know, 1 through 10 or whatever order, who, who do you want at number 11? I have, thinking aloud, between Jared Kelly, Ed Howard, and Heston Kerstad. But you can't have I – mean, I'm not giving you Heston Kerstad. You can't have Heston Kerstad. So now you're in this dilemma between do you take a high school pitcher – even though a lot of them flame out, I think it's like a 48% failure rate that they don't reach the major leagues for the guys drafted in the first and second round. And it's not like the White Sox have this great track record developing high school pitchers. Or you take the high school shortstop from your backyard, who defensively is very good, but will need time to develop the offensive side of his game. And he didn't get a chance to play his senior year. So it's like he's going to have like an 18 month break before seeing live action baseball. It, I wonder if you could trade picks if the White Sox would be in prime position to trade down. But between those two, probably they probably would. I mean, not that there's a big drop off, and I'm assuming that like in your projection, Mick Abel then is gone. Like he, like who we have at 11, like he goes in the top 10 of Kerstad's available, but. Yeah, I mean, I, I think they would be because you probably have somebody who who really wanted a guy who would trade up to, to get him. 
uh, to get somebody at 11, and they probably could trade down. But alas, you, you cannot do that. So, so who are you taking? Like, if, if our top 10 are gone, and I'm putting Mick Abel out there too, who, who do you want at 11? I, I would probably go with Jared Kelly. That's who I'm going with right now on May 10th of 2020, a month before the draft. And part of the reason for Jared Kelly is I thought he was the most impressive at Wrigley when I attended that Under yep. Armour Showcase. Uh, and if but Mick Abel wasn't there, was he? Mick Abel was not there. That was that was a lot of the conversation. I know you had to do broadcasting duties, but sitting with the scouts and other baseball writers, that was the big topic of conversation of no Mick Abel. Well, you know, Mick Abel had gone to the PDP League for three weeks in the hot Florida sun, and Jared Kelly had not. So I, I think that was just, you know, scouts saw a lot of Mick Abel. Mick, I, I saw Mick Abel the first week of PDP, yeah. and it's funny. He looked unbelievable. Um, he looked great, you know, but it's, yeah, it, it'll it'll be very interesting. I have, like, we're right now in my theoretical mock draft in my head. I have no idea who I would give the White Sox at 11. Yeah, maybe maybe, maybe Mike Shirley will be listening to this podcast, and he will text me some sage advice as to who I should put in there at 11. <laughs> you, need, you need to have you had Mike on the podcast, or are you going to get Mike? I have not yet. Okay, I have you need not to yet. get Mike on the podcast. Okay. I, I will I will do my best, see if he gets a conference call. So, And you could read Jim's excellent work on MLB.com, which he and Jonathan Mayo have weekly mailbags and podcasts. So if you have a question for Jim – to answer in his mailbag, make sure to follow him on Twitter at Jim Callis MOB. And Jim, thanks again for coming on the show. And ho- I hope we can reconnect a few days before the draft. I know that yeah. you're very busy. We should be able to. It, it, it sounds like it's not firm yet. It sounds like I may be in Secaucus um, you know, at that okay. time. I, I think we're going to do things from the studio. And uh, you know, I, I could be there a few days in advance. We may do multiple draft preview shows because, again, there's not much else going on. So I think the drafts can get right. even more of a spotlight. So I will, I will theoretically, a few days before the draft, be – well, I don't know where I'll be staying. I guess we'll figure that out if I do go to Secaucus. But uh, <laughs> I will presumably be in a hotel, assuming hotels are open in Secaucus. I, I have no idea if hotels are even open right now. I, I don't know how that works at, at this point. Well, hopefully things get better in a month so there is some yes. clarity. Um, but we look forward to your guys' draft coverage on MLB.com slash pipeline, and hopefully we can reconnect before the draft to get the latest rumors on who the White Sox could possibly select in the first round. But, Jim, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, yeah, no problem, Joe. I, I love the show. It's always good questions. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it, this has made me realize that, like, I really, I mean, not that I feel like I have the top 10 picks locked down, but I, I really have no clue who the White Sox are picking at 11 as of right now. So I think we're all in the same boat. But coming, coming up <laughs> after the break, Jim Margulis and I will discuss the latest plans for Major League Baseball to return to action in 2020 next on the Sox Machine Podcast. When you rely on the Internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible X-Fi gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your Internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Check out our amazing offers on Xfinity Internet. You'll get fast speed and Wi-Fi coverage you can count on. Plus, get advanced security free with the XFi Gateway, so you can keep the connected devices in your home protected from network threats. Just log in and activate through the Xfinity app. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. 
Get started for free on IBM Cloud. With an IBM Cloud Lite account, you can access more than 40 always free services. No credit card required and no time limits. Explore our free tier and create your account today at ibm.biz slash cloud free. Welcome back to the Sox Machine podcast. And now I'm joined with the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast. It's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. Baseball has delivered a couple of big news items this weekend, and stories are still developing as we are recording this. The Major League Baseball draft will only be five rounds, which we just discussed with Jim Callis, and the plans for the league to return uh, resuming operations as soon as one month from now. That is the plan, but owners have to agree that plan late on Monday and then send it over to the players on Tuesday, and then the Players Association has to decide whether or not to accept that deal. Let's start with the draft. How do you feel about the league cutting it down to just five rounds? I think it sucks. I think for a lot of the reasons why, you know, you've read about and we've talked about and foreshadowed just, you know, when you have a really deep collegiate draft and you have a whole bunch of, you know, high school players who might've been considered earlier, if they were actually be able to have a season, uh, they get, you know, they, they run the risk of getting the short shrift because, uh, they don't really have a whole body of work to draw upon and, and stating their leverage and uh, college scholarships, at least you know, non-junior college edition, are going to be kind of crowded with the rosters and playing time backing up. So kind of hurts uh, the leverage of some collegiate players as well. So it gets all jammed up and complicated and it doesn't seem like there's a good reason why they couldn't go at least 10. I understand like they wouldn't want to do a full 40 round draft. Even maybe 20 rounds might be a little bit tough just when you don't have a whole season to draw upon. But 10 seemed like a, you know, a, a reasonable amount of depth that even like, you know, when you look at outlets like Baseball America and Keith Law and others, you know, it seemed like there was enough talent in a draft in this draft to support mm-hmm. 10 rounds at least. Yeah, there was. There was. But is there enough minor league teams now? <laughs> that's uh, yeah. that's something to, to point out to as some have made that observation of, oh my gosh, we lost all these players to this draft, which is more than a thousand. Well, if you're going to cut 42 minor league affiliate teams and there's 25 per the 42 teams and you do the math, oh, hey, it's the same number of players that's going to be missing. How convenient. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And it does sound like even front offices don't agree with their owners on this particular item. And I feel in a month, there's going to be some teams that are going to have business as normal. They're going to spend their their pool amounts. Some teams may even go over and they're going to sign quite a few players for $20,000 after the Major League Baseball draft. And I think there are going to be some teams, Jim, that won't spend their entire draft pool and they will not be active in the open market signing college junior players uh, for $20,000 in order to cut costs for baseball operations. And I think that will be the telltale sign of which teams are financially stable and which teams are not. <laughs> yeah. When they can't afford like a hundred thousand dollars worth of uh, bonuses for, for five players. The one thing I'm curious right. about is, um, you know, if you cap it at 20,000, and, you know, all teams are theoretically equal. I mean, I imagine you'll have teams like the Yankees and Dodgers that have proven to be great at developing players and taking players next level. But also, if you have the, the teams with deep pockets like that, can, you know, is there going to be regulation in terms of what other perks they can offer? 
Is it going to be like the, uh, you know, I'm thinking like the international market when the Braves got slammed with, you know, these pre-existing deals with perks that weren't counted to towards bonuses. Is that going to be the same thing here to where you can't like promise transportation or, <laughs> or some kind of, uh, you know, I, I guess latent bonus in order to uh, make up for it. You're not supposed to. I mean, Jim Callis has yeah. been getting this question quite a bit on Twitter and he's mentioned multiple times they are not supposed to. It is just up to $20,000 signing bonus. You can't promise to give them more money the following year. And this type of payment plan for undrafted players will carry over to the 2021 draft as well. I wonder, you know, when you, when you saw like teams like the Blue Jays raise their minor league pay. Yep. 50%. I wonder if that's another way a team can differentiate itself. Absolutely. I, I'm on that same wavelength. Yeah. Especially like, say, if you're, you are reducing the amount of affiliates, you know, if you're, if a team is losing one short season one, or maybe one even full season one at low A, if they go to the complex route, seems like they can, you know, especially if there are a bunch of players they want to sign after the fifth round, that might be one thing they can say is like, we're not promising you more money. We're promising everybody more money. Mm-hmm. No, I, and if you if players know that you pay your minor leaguers more than other teams, uh, duh, they want to sign with you. If you if you call if you call me and you're going to pay me a thousand or fifteen hundred more dollars a month than the other team, I'm signing with you because you're paying me more money to play baseball. Yep, <laughs> and uh, I guess that'll test you know small market and big markets the tension among owners. Um, I wonder if they have the same, um, yeah, I wonder if they have the same interests in mind in terms of oppressing or, or, or trying to suppress player wages across the board, or is this going to be too tempting for a team that can't afford minor league players to, uh, to pay them more to step up and break away from the pack and, and differentiate themselves for a competitive advantage? It's one of those things where it's like, uh, when siding against labor, uh, it would be in their interest to not pay them, but it uh, the the temptation may prove too strong. Well, again, pay attention to which teams spend all of their draft pool, and for the teams that don't, pay attention to how many players they sign after the draft. And I think we're going to know which teams are rich, Jim, and which teams are getting really hurt uh, with this shutdown. Or maybe they're just that cheap. We'll see. We'll see how it goes in a month with the Major League Baseball draft. But on that topic, as far as on how the owners are doing, uh, let's go to the big item. And there is some hope for fans that the sport may return, but there are possible unintended consequences of bringing the CBA war that we've been expecting after the 2021 season to the now. First, the details of the plan, and this comes from Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic. The owners are going to agree upon on some type of format on Monday, May 11th, on a 78-82 to game schedule. And the way that breaks down, each team gets four three-game series against your divisional opponents, and then two three-game series against your National League division opposite. So American League Central versus National League Central to try to keep things different. geographical as far as to complete a entire season. The White Sox would not play any teams in the American League East or the American League West during the regular season. And the goal is that the teams will use their home ballparks, except maybe for Toronto. If Canada is still closing its borders, the Blue Jays may have to relocate 
to the spring training facility in Florida. The playoffs will be expanded to seven teams with the number one seed getting a bye and moving on to a divisional series while the other six playoff teams will face each other in a three-game series before moving on to the divisional series, which is a five-game series. And the owners will debate about adopting the universal DH for the 2020 season. So that is what the owners are discussing and will send over to the Players Association with this one additional nugget. Because the games most likely will not be played in front of fans, the owners will be asking the players to take more of a pay cut. And to remind everyone what they agreed upon in late March, Major League Baseball advanced the players a lump sum of $170 million, which the Players Association divided amongst themselves. And if you do the math, it's about $141,000 per player. Uh, If they gave it out evenly. Uh, If there is no season, the players keep that money. They don't get any more. But if the season is played, the players will receive their salary, supposedly, on a prorated basis based on the number of games played. So if you signed a contract for $10 million, that contract was for a 162-game season. But if we only play an 81-game season, it was supposedly agreed upon between the owners and the players association. And the players will only make half of what they signed for in 2020. And that would be $5 million in this hypothetical. However, because the game is not being played in front of fans, owners are saying they are losing too much money and they will need the players to take an even bigger pay cut. And according to sources in the players association, this comes from NBC sports, Chicago, uh, I'm sorry, NBC sports, The conversations about prorated payments was about if the games would be played this season, not whether or not those games are played in front of fans. That is a, that is a key point here that will be discussed between the owners and players association, what they agreed upon in March. So Jim, the owners are going to have this conference call on Monday around 12 o'clock Eastern time. So 11 o'clock central to, to finalize this proposal and deliver it to the players association on Tuesday, May 12th. And it sounds like the Players Association already thought that they had an agreement in place of games returned this season. But now the battle is going to be with the owners wanting them to take this further pay cut because the owners are saying that the gate cut as far as their total revenue for fans going to games is 51% of their total revenue. Are we going to get our fight that we were expecting after the 2021 season regarding the CBA, moved up to this week instead? I kind of hope so, in a way, because there's going to be a fight no matter what. Uh, I just wonder if the two topics are too distinct enough to where we could have two separate battles. Uh, one battle over how to pay players and, and whether you know that's actually true, that the gate represents you know, 51% of the uh, revenue, uh, or, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, whether players don't believe that and whether they, they think there's too much TV money and BAM money and, uh, the, the endorsements and the, in the various uh, deals they have with casinos gambling and so, yeah, money. gambling money yeah. to where they just think like, nope, you're insured, you're insured enough against fanless games and the TV ratings will, uh, be able to insulate pretty much every team against the shock of having no fans coming in. And, you know, if you have no, you know, and maybe the thing is they're factoring the the cost of stadium operations too. So, you know, maybe there's an adjustment there, you know, paying game day employees and, 
you know, just the various other personnel that normally go into controlling fans or, or uh, you know, keeping, getting fans through the gate, feeding fans, <laughs> uh, providing with drinks and such. Maybe that's something in their counting that they're not, uh, you know, reducing. And so, uh, you know, that's not quite fair math. But since they've been shady on math before, I don't know if players would trust that. And then if, if they don't use this as a, you know, ideally, I think, baseball would be better off if they use this season to hash out their CBA stuff just because it's going to be a weird season no matter what and if teams don't feel convinced that it's in their interest to return the field no matter what get it out of the way now you know, like just uh start uh, renegotiating the CBA uh before you get to it so that way you don't lose a season because of complete BS only um pandemic field BS which I think fans and everybody else would be a lot more forgiving of just because nobody has experienced anything like this nobody saw it coming in terms of league leadership so that's that's I think my biggest problem with this is that you could have two separate flare-ups that uh, neither of them resolved in a satisfactory manner I I 100% agree with you Jim and I think the reason why I'm with you that if I'm the Players Association if I'm Tony Clark I am bringing that CBA war that was planned for late 2021 to the present. Because if the owners are complaining or whining, let's say, that we are losing way too much money, the gate re- revenue is 51% of our total revenue in a season. If I'm Tony Clark, prove it. Bring out your books, open them up, and prove that number is right. Because I don't believe you. And no one should believe any owner in Major League Baseball when they're getting the media folks to say, well, according to sources, 51% of every team's revenue is based on gate attendance. Oh, really? Then the White Sox are screwed, right? The attendance has been (laughs) terrible. How did Jerry Reinsdorf all of a sudden can afford all these free agents that he signed? And how could the White Sox possibly even think about offering any money to Mookie Betts if attendance uh, is such a huge factor to how much money he brings. We know that's not true. We know that's not true. The TV side and the the BAM money and the other advertisements, that that is the larger chunk here. If I'm wrong, then I'm wrong. But the only way you're going to prove me wrong is if you open up the books because they make the TV deals public – They announce them. We know how much money that the White Sox are making from NBC Sports Chicago. We know how much every team in Major League Baseball is making off the ESPN and the Fox and the Turner deals. But we don't know the specifics on how much money they make for fans going to the game. And if they decide to open up their books this week and prove that it's 51%, then I'll go eat crow. And then the players should make concessions then. But I don't think the owners are going to do that. And I don't think there's any reason for the Players Association to trust the owners. So I could foresee a stalemate that delays this start of the 2020 season, which it sounds like Major League Baseball is hoping around June 10th, around the Major League Baseball draft, they could start spring training too. Yeah, I think the the dangerous position that owners are trying to to, uh, strike here is that you know, when when Major League Baseball, uh, when the Players Association was on the wrong side of the CBA and you, know, you had uh, players getting um, stuck with a bad free agent market, a cold one, and they couldn't you know enforce any kind of um, 
you know, like salary floor type activity to just get teams to invest more money and talent um, for the sake of it. And, you know, they had the service time deals that they couldn't uh, prove, uh, you know, that were, that was uh, uh, yeah, to an arbitrator that it was unfair and, and unjust in the system. And, you know, you heard fans and you heard owners saying, well, this is, you know, CBA, you got to live with it. We're abiding by it. Yep. Uh, and, 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 you know, chalk it up to a lousy CBA and negotiate better next time. Well, in this case, you know, if the players get, are getting a certain amount of money, which is the prorated amount of a 162 game season, it's really weird for all of a sudden to say the, you know, whatever, um, you know, poor negotiation they ended up with or whatever they think is unfair. It seems, uh, you know, hypocritical to say, well, we deserve the right to go back to the, the table and negotiate a better deal for ourselves or else the season isn't happening. Exactly. So that's that's exactly. one reason why I can't see this being as successful as it might have been before. And then the other reason is that, uh, you know, in this case, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think back, you know, to previous labor stoppages and such. You know, there wasn't a pandemic hanging over the whole thing, and it wasn't a matter of, you know, there's always the idea that labor and the players are creating the value, they're creating the action that fans are coming to see, fans are tuning in to watch, and so the entire product revolves around the players. You know, that was always, you know, that's always been the idea, uh, as long as, like, you know, the, the Players Association has existed and the whole tension in negotiating these CBAs. But when you have no baseball... Um, yeah, and, and not because of labor stoppage. And then you have a pandemic here that makes players uh, even more valuable because they're not only the ones, per, you know, creating the product and, and, and bringing the talent, but they're also taking the risk of traveling and being exposed to other people and, you know, playing with, and, you know, with or without masks. Um, but just, you know, having all these things to consider uh, when it comes to just the greater public health issue that it's hard for them. I think it's hard for owners to say that uh, players are worth less uh, than was previously agreed to when they're the ones taking on the risk. Like the owners, uh, executives are not taking on risks, answering phones, texting people, uh, you know, uh, participating in conference calls or Zoom meetings. It's the players who are interacting and uh, running into each other and, and <laughs> sharing clubhouse space and sharing dugout space and, uh, spitting or not spitting or whatever you want to call it, you know, like, you know, having to, uh, alter personal habits in order to try to, uh, preserve their health. You know, that's, uh, I think a, a really hard position for, uh, the league to take. Now I, I could be wrong about this because for some reason, uh, at least in previous labor stoppages, people have tended to side with the billionaires over the millionaires, or at least there's been, a, it's been rather easy for the owners to, get fan sentiment saying they're playing a game and you know, I would play that game for hundred thousand dollars. I don't need a hundred million, you know, that, you know, that kind of argument. So that's been in the past, it's been somewhat easy for owners to get that sentiment. But I think if there's a, if, if you just had these, uh, previous salty, uh, responses to, um, unfavorable negotiation outcomes in the, in the recent, very recent past, and now you have this public health risk playing into it. I just think that might be harder to pull off. We'll see how it goes. I don't think we're going to get a resolution anytime soon. And I do think you're right, Jim. The owners, they're going to come up with this plan to bring baseball back in 2020. Fans are going to be super hyped to hear that baseball is going to happen in 2020. They're going to be excited. They send this proposal over to the Players Association. It's a terrible proposal for them. The Players Association says... We will not be coming back under these terms. 
that gives the owners and using their army of writers that love to use the owners as unnamed sources to go out and say the Players Association doesn't feel comfortable returning to play games in 2020. And then all the onus and all of the blame from the fan bases goes on to the players saying they are too greedy. And I think it's safe. I'll go out and play. If you guys don't want to play, I just want baseball back. Yeah. And and when you have, I guess, you know, the, uh, a lot of States and you have the federal response at the top, you know, trying to open uh, States and open the economy before public health experts are saying, you know, it's ready to. And yeah, it it seems like that, that might stoke some uh, fuel under the the fire to try to, you know, fan out out, uh, backlash to get players on the field. However, you know, when it comes to, um, well, one, you know, we'll see if there's a second flare up, you know, when it comes to states opening up and whether you know, there's a, the, the curve reverses and goes back up and it just becomes untenable. They don't have the testing to support the league opening. That's that's the big thing. Uh, this, this whole subplot to the whole thing that could make even an 80 game proposal impossible. I could see that being the case and just, uh, um, you know, undermining the whole thing and, you know, if that's the case, then there's nothing the league or the players can do because yeah, everything is reopening before they're even coming back into it. But it just strikes me as like uh, one, the I guess the other thing that's different about this too is that fans might be excited, but they can't go to games. And there's like a lack of physical connection to actually going. There's nothing they can go to. I mean, they can watch on TV. That's kind of exciting. That's kind of new, but it's still not normal. And there's nothing they, they you know they can't line up outside the stadium. They can't like rush in for revised opening day. It's gonna be uh, it's gonna be less tangible than it has in the past. And I wonder if that's going to uh, possibly suppress fan interest or fan passion just because there's no way to show up. The fans uh, stadiums are gonna be empty. I'm not sure if you've watched any of the uh, uh, the KBO games on ESPN. It just you know it is. It's not bad. You know, it's baseball. It's it's, it's good quality baseball. And uh, I think the broadcasters are trying to do their best. I think they, they lose touch of the action sometimes because they're not having producers in the ear telling them what's coming. Uh, but, you know, it just, it's not the same. It, it's a little bit um, ethereal in a way and not, uh, and not grounded in the same kind of context we're used to seeing it. So I wonder if that's going to suppress uh, the backlash somewhat, knowing that even if the season is played, it's gonna gonna be good at baseball back, but it's not gonna be a real season the way like a uh, you know like nineteen ninety four would have been real or nineteen ninety five uh, was going to be real before the strike shortened that season too. In nineteen eighty one, you know that was you know it it's, counts as a real season, but it's a weird one. But still, it was just labor getting involved, and fans could go back to games as soon as possible. So that's why I'm wondering if fan reaction is just gonna be a little bit different this time. Well, there are some owners that are also skeptical of Rob Manfred's intentions because it does sound like the owners will be discussing having a universal DH in 2020. And with the postseason expanding Hmm. to seven teams, you're probably not just having this for one season. They're going to probably continue it moving forward. So we'll see on how the voters, uh, I should say how the owners vote on that on Monday, especially the National League owners. If, if they still want to continue their style of the game compared to the American League on still having pitchers hit, but that is on the table as well as to have universal DH in 2020. And I know that is something that uh, a lot of the American League owners and even Rob Manfred, they would like to implement so the entire sport plays under the same rules and you don't have split rules between the American League and the National League. 
but I want there is some skepticism. It sounds like right now on Twitter, some reporting from John Heyman uh, that National League owners are are wondering if this is going to be something that is full time and not just a 2020 rule moving forward. So there you go. You you have factions here. You're gonna have a lot of arguments in the next 48 hours, and I, this stuff is never fun to talk about. We'd rather talk mm-hmm. about the games. And hopefully we do have some games to discuss, but there is, we've been, we've been foreshadowing for a long time. There is this incredible tension between the players association and the owners. And what it comes down for me, Jim, what it drills down to is I do not want the owners to manipulate the fan base and point the finger at the players and say, it's their fault that we're not returning in 2020. Yeah, no, I think uh, if it comes down to the compensation and not abiding by the previously agreed to compensation because either Major League Baseball didn't foresee, fanless games are just are trying to uh, grab even more than they agreed to because they see an opening, which I could see both cases, you know, both things being the case. Um, then uh, yeah, it just it strikes me as poor. And I wonder if there's going to be factions, too. In terms of, you know, if it gets to the point where the players hold firm and they say that we're not going to, uh, you know, play by by reduced pay, we're going to take the field under the conditions we agreed to. If you're going to have some division between the ownerships among like ownerships that have cash and ownerships that don't, because, uh, you know, it's I don't think it's. Yeah, I don't think it's just like rich and poor. I think it's also ones that are leveraged and ones that uh, are not, you know, and, uh, you know, ones that can afford to pay their team employees uh, for a full season and ones that can't. We've seen that division already uh, with teams going, you know, paying their uh, game day employees and, and, and full season staff, uh, front office staff that, you know, doesn't really, you know, like advertising sales, et cetera, you know, through the rest of May and other teams that are considering furloughs or not paying game day employees. Um, we're already seeing that division. So, you know, if it comes down to uh, teams that have the money to, to, you know, float to staff and just absorb it as a one-year loss and other teams that don't, um, that's going to be fascinating. It really is. And I wonder if those teams that do have money, like the Steinbrenners, if they really add pressure on other ownership groups to think about selling and to have other owners take over teams. Example, the Oakland A's. Hmm. Yeah, I just wonder, you know, when you have like teams like the Marlins, you know, like Bruce Sherman uh, and you know, buys the team and then has to cut costs immediately because he can't afford you know, the previous costs and he has to pay down debt. Um, yeah, I just wonder if even it's going to be tough for to, to form new ownership groups. Yeah, well, that's a good point, too. That's a good point. Again, we're going to find out a lot about the financial stability of teams in Major League Baseball. And I think the end result is, Jim, we're going to find out maybe a third of the league is doing a lot of heavy lifting, a lot of heavy lifting. So, again, pay attention to the draft, who is spending money, who is signing players, pay attention to who's still paying employees or who has to do massive layoffs or furloughs. Pay attention to that because that that will scream as far as the financial stability of those ball clubs. And that will obviously have impact, not just for 2020, but beyond. Well, you guys had a few questions for us. So Jim and I will take a quick break, but coming up next, it's PO Sox. 
When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Check out our amazing offers on Xfinity Internet. You'll get fast speed and Wi-Fi coverage you can count on. Plus, get advanced security free with the XFi Gateway, so you can keep the connected devices in your home protected from network threats. Just log in and activate through the Xfinity app. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. When you rely on the Internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. And now, Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Check out our amazing offers on Internet and learn about the latest breakthrough from Xfinity. Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. That's more than enough speed to power all your devices and then some. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible x gateway. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter by following us on Twitter at Sox Machine or posting uh, your questions on our Patreon page to help support the site and the show at patreon.com slash Sox Machine. And Jim's here to answer your guys' questions. And our first question comes from Andrew. And Andrew's asking, how likely is it for either the Chicago White Sox or another team that a team will follow the this following scenario that Keith Law outlined in his article on The Athletic the other day, which teams draft players only to offer them 40% of the slot value and try to push the pick into next season. Beyond its bad faith treatment of players, is there a compelling reason to add players into the pipeline in a year when there would actually be minor league baseball. I think the argument against, you know, total bad faith from a critical mass of teams would be that, you know, it's a pretty deep draft, especially for college players. Um, and, you know, you don't have to go five rounds. You, you're limited to 20,000 after that. And so I think there's probably enough, um, you know, enough teams talking to a, a concentrated amount of players to where players can get an idea of, how teams are negotiating, which teams are respecting which numbers. And, you know, as they talk about it and get a firm idea of which players can be taken which round, you know, given just the relatively low amount they're investing in the farm system this year with just five rounds and $20,000 maximum after that, seems like it would be foolish for too many teams to go that route. Like, as you mentioned, with uh, teams being uh, perhaps cash poor or in, in lesser financial situations, you could have the bit of a rope-a-dope there to where they say, uh, uh, you know, we'll give you this number. And then when it uh, comes down to sign, we'll say like, oh, we had a problem with the physical. Um, here is 50% please don't take it. We want the pick next year where we can actually afford it and uh, you'll know, be able to um, you know, pay two players in a round versus one. But you know, given, the, given the pretty deep draft and given uh, just how cheap it is, relatively speaking, as opposed to other forms of player acquisition to provide a boost to your farm system and your uh, immediate like three to five year window, it would seem like it would be pretty foolish to get too cavalier unless a team really can't afford it. Good luck with the advisors and agents for those teams trying to pull this trick off. <laughs> you will be labeled cheap. Don't talk to these teams. 
They are too cheap. Never talk to them. I mean, you wouldn't do this with a Scott Boris advised client. You just wouldn't. Yeah. I'm just thinking with the Astros with uh, uh, Brady Aiken. And then but that Jacob. was because of an injury, though, right? Yeah, it Something was. Something that they discovered after. Yeah, but it was just, uh, you know, they were, they were, you know the, the Astros front office didn't have a great reputation at the time for being cold and uh, just it being reflective of a bigger issue with the way the Astros regarded talent and, and, and regarded players. And it didn't come back to bite them. They actually did quite well uh, getting draft picks back. So I can see that being a case where teams might think it's worth the effort. But if, yeah, they're, they're creating... Um, you know, reduced valuations between draft picking and draft negoti- draft pick negotiations uh, out of whole cloth or imaginary reasons or or what have you, then yeah, it seems like a slightly different case to where it would be harder to negotiate going forward, even, you know, for, for picks that are like third round or lower when the draft theoretically gets back to normal and you can push some money around between rounds. Uh, I agree with Jim Callis that in the fourth and fifth round, college juniors are not going to probably get offered anywhere close to the slot value of that pick. They only may get a $100,000 offer and it's take it or leave it. Like you got, is he used as far as the hypothetical, you got two minutes to accept this hundred thousand dollar deal. If you don't accept, we're going to call the next guy. And if those juniors don't accept that hundred thousand dollar offer in the fifth round and they don't get drafted, Jim, then all of a sudden they can only sign for $20,000. So I do see in the fifth round, especially uh, a lot of college players being drafted and coming nowhere near the slot value for those picks. So either teams, what are, what teams do with that money again is important. Are they going to use that extra savings to go over slot like the White Sox did last year in the second and third rounds to get better talent earlier in the draft? Or are they just going to pocket that money because they need to save money. That that's that's what I'm getting at as far as pay attention to how teams spend the money in the draft. Are they going to do this in the first round? Uh, I don't know. I th- this whole bad faith, it would be absolutely terrible if a team drafted someone, didn't even have any negotiations with them and told them we're only offering you 40% of our slot value. If you don't sign it, we still have rights to you. Um, but then if you don't sign then that's fine good luck, go to college, and then we get that first-round pick next year. That would be terrible. That yeah. would be terrible. and I think there's just too much talent in the first round to do that. Well, instead, just if you know a kid's going to sign for $1.5 million and money is an issue, then draft the kid that will that will agree with you for $1.5 million and pay him you know, $1.5 million when your slot value is $3 million. You know, if you need to save money that way, just don't don't put players in terrible positions where it's take it or leave it, right? If, if you're going to reach, you're going to draft a third-round talent and because you can save a couple million dollars in your first-round pick and you want to draft them first in the first round, okay, whatever. That's your prerogative. But I don't want to see the league put these kids in terrible positions where they get drafted with having very few conversations with the team and then just left with this take-it-or-leave-it deal that I think Keith Law is hinting at. And uh, that that would be absolutely terrible for Major League Baseball. Yeah, it just sucks, that, though, that there are so many ways you can put prospects against the wall. 
That's baseball, man. Yeah. It's not it's just not prospects right now. Yeah. It's it's players that reach the majors before they get into arbitration, when they get into arbitration. That that's why they, they're fighting that's why the player association's fighting so hard right now to try to become free agents as soon as possible because then you get that freedom. But once you get that freedom, it also comes with a lot of cold shoulders we are noticing. So Yeah, it just feels like uh, pretty – it feels like more dangerous at this level. Like, you know, putting player, uh, draft prospects against the wall, just like making them – giving them less reason to choose baseball at a younger age. Yep, exactly. I think Scott Boris had that uh, quote in the Rosenthal piece that after Little League, you might as well play another sport. Yeah, it's especially like, say, it'll be, uh, you know, fascinating to see how this affects the collegiate ranks, you know, for football and basketball, you know, as they come out of a lost season and figuring out what the scholarship level is there and whether, you know, the NFL and NBA have to figure out their pipeline situation. Well, in basketball with the G League, they're already taking some of the top high school prospects and convincing them to skip college and sign $1 million deals to go directly into the development league. Yeah. Yeah. Or Europe, too, is an option there. Right. So, I mean, basketball is starting to figure out a way not needing the college game at all. And that's not going to make, you know, the top paid college coaches very happy. But it's about the players. It's about making that money. And I don't think it's greedy at all. That's their value. But, Andrew, we'll see, man. This is a really tricky situation. And, again, we'll probably get more insight in the upcoming month. I I really hope teams don't do that. But I I already know it in my gut that there's going to be teams that are going to try to save us much money in this upcoming draft. I think it will hurt them in the long run as far as trying to win games in the field. But I think the intention, the attention right now for every major league baseball team is not so much winning, but trying to cut costs at the moment. Our next question comes from John and John is asking Jim as someone who pays fairly close attention to rookies throughout baseball. If each team could only field their team from players ages 26 and younger, who would you bet to win the World Series during a hypothetical regular length 2020 season? John assumes the Dodgers, Yankees, and Braves would all be in that conversation, but who else? Well, the Yankees have kind of aged out of that, especially like Severino hurt and Judge being older. Uh, they don't really have a whole lot of talent uh, 26 and under. Like Gary Sanchez just aged out of that as well. So they're they're great at, you know, uh, they, they've really... Um, matriculated their young talent into peak form and they've been great at finding other teams rejects and and signing older players to uh, valuable role player situations and that's been you know something the White Sox haven't been able to do to supplement their core but the Yankees are great at that you know they're great at identifying uh, players in need of a change of scenery or second chance that's one of the reasons why they're as strong as they are but when it comes to just talent uh, 26 and under I do see the Dodgers there uh, you know Cody Bellinger and Walker Bueller and uh, Will Smith and Gavin Lux, Dustin May, Arias, uh, Kybert Ruiz, Bruce Argretterall. So, I mean, that's like a great core right there. White Sox are looking at Eloy Jimenez, Dylan Cease, Yohan Mankata, Lucas Giolito, Michael Kopech, Luis Robert, Nick Madrigal, Reynaldo Lopez. I like their chances. Yeah, I like, I, you know, in terms of uh, production and ceiling, it's a really good combination. Because, I mean, you can see a guy like Cease who hasn't yet produced producing uh, same thing with uh, Robert and Madrigal. You can see them hitting the ground running. You can see Kopech bouncing back from Tommy John surgery. Just, they just haven't done it yet the way like some of the Dodgers guys already have. 
Same with the Rays. The Rays are there. Um, I, I think it's one team he didn't name was the Rays. Uh, Willie Adamas, Brandon Lau, uh, Wander Franco, Austin Meadows, Brendan McKay, um, Brent Honeywell, if he can be healthy, uh, and then Tyler Glasnow. Like, that's a really... Yeah, yeah, I think it's <laughs> a good team. Yeah, I would put them ahead of the White Sox, and then the Braves are there too: with Soroka, Acuna, Austin Riley, Ozzy Albies, Tuki Toussaint, Kyle Wright, uh, Chris, uh, Christian uh, Pache, uh, Drew Waters, Ian Anderson, Dansby Swanson, Max Fried. Like that's a really good uh, twenty-six hundred team. So I think those are the teams I would put clearly ahead of the White Sox. But when it comes to other teams in that. Uh, tier like I'm thinking like the Padres Astros Blue Jays are top heavy in that regard I think the White Sox are pretty much right there on the second tier no I agree with you on that I definitely agree with you on that but I mean if you had a hypothetical World Series I would say Rays against Braves I know that kind of rhymes uh, but that that's that's what I would have in that hypothetical World Series because Tampa's really stacked I think for the American League they have the strongest age 26 and younger team I think the White Sox are a team that would make the postseason if you had a hypothetical season like this. Uh, but in the National League, yeah, the Braves, the Padres, the Dodgers, yeah, that that, that those three would definitely be in the postseason. They are they are very strong. But that it, it's 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 a great question to ask, especially in this stage of where the White Sox are with the rebuild, because that is going to be the core that needs to do a lot of, of the heavy lifting, Jim. Yeah, they. The White Sox signed Grandal and they signed Keuchel and they brought back Jose Abreu and they got Edwin Encarnacion. But again, something we were talking about in February and March when we were preparing for the regular season is that if the White Sox are going to have a winning season, if they're going to be this dark horse contender to win the American League Central, they need the young the young kids to do the heavy lifting. And if they can, then this team is incredibly dangerous. Uh, and it's gonna really it's gonna kick the door open uh, for this contention window that hopefully will produce multiple postseason appearances, which is the the end goal when they started this journey in the winter meetings back in 2016. But when you when you look at this question, you think about where are the White Sox right now under this uh, guideline? And like I said, I like their odds. Yeah, and the Twins are another team like the Yankees that just aged out of that as well. So I mean, the Twins are. There. <laughs> They're very much there, unfortunately. Right. Absolutely. But, John, it's a great question. Thank you so much for asking it. Our next question comes from Greg Nix. And Greg is asking, which owners do you anticipate will be the loudest slash most important voices in the return from COVID-19 and the new CBA, akin to Jerry Reinsdorf's role in the 1994 strike. Well, Reinsdorf is still there. <laughs> He's uh, yep. when it comes to like, he has not proven that there's a labor fight. He um, opts out of he um, most recently, he was against Bud Selig, you know, handpicking uh, Rob Manfred to take over just because he felt like Manfred was too soft on the union and <laughs> which is, you know, and, and as events have played out, it seems like Manfred's just been fine against the union and that Ryan Surf's had nothing to complain about when it comes to uh, various elements being bent towards his will, like, you know, capping the amateur market, capping the international market, possibly putting an international draft, like a lot of things he should like about the way the league has gone under Manfred's uh, tenure. So, but you know, it was a fight and, and Reinsdorf took it on. And uh, given that he doesn't really speak in public aside from to, you know, issue compliments to 
his favorite people. Um, yeah, there's no proof that he you know, still doesn't have the appetite to take on a fight like this. So I would put him there. Uh, another interesting name is Artie Moreno of the Angels. Um, back when uh, Reinsdorf was trying to run somebody else against uh, uh, Rob Manfred to be the next commissioner, uh, they picked Tom Werner, who was part of the Red Sox ownership group. And of the uh, all the owners, the only ones that went with Reinsdorf were reportedly uh, John Henry of the Red Sox and Artie Moreno of the Angels. And Henry, you know, siding with one of his own organizational members, that makes sense. You know, that's not necessarily a strike against Manfred or you know, any kind of ownership, labor posturing, but more just support for his own guy. But Moreno was the one who didn't really have any reason to go against Manfred. And uh, according to, I think it was a Daily News, either Daily News or New York Times. I think it was New York Times, actually, now that I'm remembering the font and layout of the page I saw the paragraph on, uh, that it was uh, uh, Artie Moreno who was the other one uh, cited as thinking that Manfred was too soft on the union. So if you're looking for somebody to take a harder line, he could be one of those players. However, you know, if you're looking at uh, an owner who has cash, like Moreno always seems to have operated as though he's fine. Um, he's been very uh, generous with employees and, you know, payroll and fans. Uh, nobody's really had a bad word to say about him in that regard. So if you're looking at like the owners who operate as though they don't have like a whole lot of money on hand, there's uh, Sherman with the Marlins, as we've heard, and uh, the Wilpons with the Mets, have always run kind of a shoestring uh, uh, chintzy operation and kind of nickel and diming a lot of people on, at weird times. Uh, so I could see them being uh, an ownership group that doesn't have an interest in paying anybody more than they have to at this point. And then also the Monforts with the Rockies have had some weird, you know, they've been, they've, they've handed out some big contracts and suspiciously big contracts to players who might not warrant them. So, you know, they've, they've operated in some regards that, uh, as a team that doesn't worry about how every cent is spent, but they've also uh, sounded the alarms when it came to posturing against Nolan Arenado that uh, they can't add anymore, and they might have to consider uh, trading some people and, uh, and and figuring out kind of how to retool, maybe not rebuild entirely, but retool uh, to you know reopen a, a window that's more conducive than them adding players in the future. So they were the ones that kind of jumped out to me as like, oh, maybe they would take this opportunity to draw a harder line, but those are the ones that jump out to me initially. The rest are either, you know, big money or uh, big market uh, ownerships that have been well-established and have a fair amount of money. And I would put the White Sox in that group ordinarily because they've just been around for so long and they don't, and it doesn't seem like uh, Reinsdorf and the ownership groups really take a lot of dividends. Uh, it seems like, yeah, they're pretty, I think they're pretty well capitalized. Um, you know, same thing with Ricketts. I think the Ricketts are fine, even though they might take a harder stance. I think they're you know, the real estate uh, holdings around Wrigleyville make it seem like they would want uh, just baseball being played. So there's that. Um, hard to say, but you know, otherwise, you know, just a lot of entrenched ownership groups that seem like they should be okay uh, handling, you know, a lost season or at least a, a, a greatly diminished season. Well, Greg, thank you so much for asking your question. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week for P.O. Socks. If you have a question or topic that you would like us to tackle in a future episode of the Socks Machine podcast, again, follow us on Twitter. We are at Socks Machine and help support the site and the show at patreon.com slash Socks Machine, where you receive additional content with every single podcast episode. Our Patreon supporters will get 
additional content from Jim Callis as he answered some of your guys' questions to him regarding the Major League Baseball draft. And Jim and I always answer additional P.O. Sox questions for every episode as well. And those podcast episodes are ad-free. So if you are not a Patreon supporter and you want more content from us, go to patreon.com slash machine to sign up today. And that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. Again, big thanks to one of our best friends of the show, Jim Callis of MLBPipeline.com, for joining the show to talk about the Major League Baseball draft. And again, hopefully we have him on the podcast again shortly before the Major League Baseball draft to get the latest rumors on who the White Sox could possibly take in the first round. If you just discovered the Sox Machine Podcast, you can subscribe to the podcast in a variety of ways, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Audioboom.com slash Machine. The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible X-Fi gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G. Because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from Metrics second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.